chapter 11. Book of Romans is one of the clearest logical um, expositions of the gospel. And today we find ourselves closing out a major portion of the book. Um, you could divide Romans into three chunks if you wanted to. You could make chapters 1 to 8, the exposition of the gospel, and 9 to 11. How does Israel relate to this? And then starting in chapter 12, Paul will shift from his declarative statements of this is to his imperative statements, this is what you should do. It's going to shift from teaching to exhortation, teach from indicatives to imperatives, from what is to what should be. And so this chunk at the end of chapter 11 really serves as a capstone, as a hinge point. And it's not surprising then that we find that it is a doxology. Paul in poetic language is declaring God's excellencies, wrapping up, bringing to a close this section of the book. So let's just read this text, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Lord God, as we, as we turn our eyes to this pinnacle of praise in the book of Romans, we pray that you would unite our hearts to echo the same cry. As Paul is thinking through the gospel and thinking through Israel and the church, it seems that this praise bursts forth from his heart and we want our hearts in tune to the same way. So Lord, if there are any here who are not passionate about the gospel, who are not excited about what work you are doing, Lord, give us hearts of, of flesh that would rejoice as we see your plans unfolding in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. In order to rightly study this passage, we're going to need to take some look at what has come before. Paul is, is adding a sort of summary, this capstone, this doxology, this poetic burst out of praise. But, but what is it in reference to? Is it just the verse before? Is it the chapter before? Is it the section before? Is it the whole book? Um, and, and the answer, I think, is sort of yes and no. It's, it's sort of everything. Most locally, it certainly is in reference to the last three chapters, Paul's teaching on Israel. And this end of chapter 11 serves as a massive contrast to the way chapter 9 begins where Paul lays out his heart cry that his kinsmen would be saved and how he wishes almost to be damned for their sake. And yet here, he's extolling God's grace and mercy. But even chapter 9 to 11 hinges off of the end of chapter 8. So we're going to quickly sprint through the book of Romans in the next three or four minutes. Go back to chapter 1. We, we need to see where we've come from. This, this text closes out the teaching portion of Romans. 
the didactic portion of Romans. And so for us to properly understand why Paul is saying what he is saying, we need to follow what's come before. So in chapter one of Romans, Paul lays out his thesis, why it is he's writing in verses 16 to 17. Verses I'm sure familiar to most here. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's, that's what he's writing about, this gospel that saves Jew and Greek, that displays God's righteousness by faith. And the next eight chapters will be talking about how by faith it displays God's righteousness. And then 9 through 11 will deal with that Jew and Greek issue. What are we to do with Israel? But surprisingly, after announcing the gospel's declaration and revealing of God's righteousness, he moves to a different revealing in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness. And for the next three chapters, Paul gives us the bad news. Why is God angry? He isn't going to pick up again this notion of the gospel and faith and righteousness really until the middle of chapter three. Turn over to chapter three and after thoroughly, fully, and in many ways damning us against the standard of our own conscience, against the standard of how we judge other people, we've got numerous nooses around our necks. We cannot live up to the standard of our conscience. We can't even pass if God only judged us based on how we judge others. We'd fail at every turn. And he closes out this first section of the book in chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this next point, Paul has thoroughly announced the judgment of everyone, and then 21 moves on the development of the book. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul is now back on his main theme, how the gospel demonstrates the righteousness of God to those who have faith in Jesus. And so for the next few chapters, he'll explain how this works and how it's not by works, but by faith. And by the time we get to chapter eight, he's unfolding the benefits of the gospel. And so if we pick it up in chapter 8, verse 38, not only are we saved by the gospel, not only are we adopted, not only do we receive the Holy Spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father, not only do all these things happen, but we have absolute security in Christ that once we are his, we can never be taken from his hand. And he makes this bold Amazing, wonderful statement at the end of chapter 8, closing out this section, unpacking the gospel itself with this. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful truth that is. But Paul is anticipating an objection, and the next three chapters really deal with that. The objection being, that sounds good, Paul, this nothing can separate you from God thing, but didn't God make similar promises to the nation of Israel? Aren't there similar 
Equally strong statements about how I will never forsake you. A nursing mother might perhaps forget her child, but I will not forget you. And look at Israel around Paul. It sure looks like they are forgotten. Jesus pronouncing those woes, predicting the destruction of the temple. And the majority of the church at this time shifting to be Gentile. Paul himself being the apostle to the Gentiles. If that could happen to Israel... And God can make those same types of bold promises to Israel, then what confidence do we as believers have that the same thing can't happen to us? Or to put it another way, if Israel is God's son, if Israel is elect, if Israel is chosen, if Israel is the Lord's special possession, and Israel can be apparently cast off, then what confidence can we have? And so the next three chapters really try to reconcile this. Paul puts the question most plainly in chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And really, as he brings out the big guns of predestination and election and all these difficult doctrines that people argue over, it's really to defend that statement. Whatever you make of Israel's current state, Paul says, know that it is not a failure of God's word, a failure of God to keep his word. And he he starts out by declaring his anguish. I mean, look at just 9-1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And there's a tension here that we want to keep in balance. Paul, looking at the current state of Israel, the current state of his kinsmen, is in deep anguish. And yet, by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, and he explains what God is doing, and he gets to the mountaintop vantage point where he can see and explain to us the plans of God, he he worships God. Um, And we're going to see that calamity and trial and things that we would view as awful things in our life, it is right and good for anguish to be there, for us to mourn and lament. And yet we also, like Paul, need to keep another foot on the mountain, viewing God's big overarching plans, trusting in what he's doing and knowing that he's working all things together for his glory. So Paul's argument through 9, 10, 11 goes like this. God's word didn't fail. How so, Paul? Well, verse 6, for all who are descended from Israel, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's where he brings in election. He says, look, in effect, just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you're one of God's chosen And then he gives some examples. I mean, after all, Abraham had more than one son, and yet it was only Isaac who was the child of promise. And then you jump down a little further to uh, verse 10. And not only this, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. And so what Paul's basically saying is, yes, God chose Israel. Yes, God made promises to Abraham. But in the first three generations, we see selection. In the first three generations from Abraham, we see this one, not that one. This one, not that one. And it shouldn't surprise us then when Paul says the answer to the problem is that not all Israel is Israel. And then he jumps down to the next rhetorical question he assumes. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice by God? Well, is is God breaking his word? No, no, God's not obligated, Paul says in short, to be merciful to anyone. He's merciful to whom he wants. He he brings up that event where Moses, crying out to want to see God's glory and being held in the cleft of the rock, and God walks by and he says, I'll be merciful to whom I'm merciful. And Paul says, so remember, this is nothing new. 
At the very first, as God's revealing himself, he said, hi, I'm God, and I do what I want. And, and God, from the very beginning, has said that. And from the very beginning of his covenant promises to Abraham, he's this one, not that one. The child of promise is Isaac, not Ishmael. And, and these may be hard things for us to hear, but Paul is simply saying this is nothing new, if you think about it biblically. And he moves on to try to explain Israel's unbelief. And in verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness have attained to it, a righteousness that is by faith. Yes, they have. And Israel failed to reach the righteousness because he says they were pursuing it as though it were by works. But by the time we get to chapter 11, which is where our text is found, Paul starts to reveal a wonderful mystery. That while Israel has stumbled, while Israel has been um, set aside for a time, it's all part of God's working plan. So pick it up in verse, chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So is Israel's stumbling over the Messiah a permanent game ender? So they're done. No, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, the mystery that Paul is laying out is this. Through Israel's stumbling, through Israel's failing to receive their Messiah, what was the consequence of that? The gospel went to the Gentiles. Every one of us who is not a Jewish person today should be thankful for this aspect of God's plan. And then Paul says, but that end because the Gentiles' inclusion is designed to provoke Israel to jealousy and bring them back in. And if God worked that much good through Israel's stumbling, just think what God's going to do when Israel's faithful, is what Paul is saying. And now we're getting closer to this doxology. We're getting closer to tying these things together. Look at verse 25. Lest ye be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, all Israel will be saved. Not all Israel in time and space, but the nation of Israel in that day when the last Gentile is converted, when the church is raptured away, when Israel, according to Zechariah, looks on him whom they have pierced and mourns over one as a firstborn. In that day, the nation of Israel will repent and believe. And so Paul now, looking at this whole plan of action of how do you explain what's going on right now, Paul? How do you explain this tragedy of the nation of Israel who, who had the scriptures, who should have known better, stumbling, missing their Messiah, being apparently cast off in this ragtag bunch of pagan Gentiles being brought in? Well, Paul says, on the one hand, looking at it, my heart breaks. My kinsmen are perishing apart from Christ. My kinsmen are, are dying for lack of knowledge. And yet, he says, this was all done to bring the Gentiles in and ultimately allow God to have mercy on all. And so when Paul looks at this big unfolding scheme of God's plan, he, he cannot help but burst out into praise. This is the context of this doxology at the end of chapter 11. As regards the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved 
the sake of their forefathers. And this is Pastor Gary's sermon of two weeks ago or last week. Last week? Beloved enemies. Yes, two weeks ago. This strange current state of Israel is the beloved enemy. God's not done with them yet, but right now they are hostile to the gospel. And then verse 30. For as you were once at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so what Paul is praising is this wonderful and mysterious working of God whereby an apparent failure on the part of Israel opens up the riches of the gospel to the Gentiles, which in turn invites Israel into faith. And in this way, God will save Jew and Greek back to the thesis of the gospel. He will save both Israel and his church. And when Paul sees this working plan of God, he, he bursts out in praise. That's the context of what we're to look at. The doxology itself breaks down into four sections. There's three declarations that praise God's plan, three questions that reveal God's incomprehensible greatness, three prepositions that show the God-centeredness of all things, and one inescapable conclusion. So let's, let's look at Paul's doxology, but you've got to keep in mind this context. You've got to keep in mind this tension between the current state of Israel that's tearing Paul's heart apart and Paul's great eschatological, long-term hope of what God is doing through it all so that he can simultaneously, within the scope of three chapters, talk about how he wishes he could almost be accursed for their sake and yet extol the greatness of God's plan in one and the same event. That, that's the important thing to grasp. To, to grab a hold of one and not the other is, is to miss the point. To grab a hold of one and miss the other is to miss the point. Three declarations that praise God's wise plan. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. The first thing that Paul chooses to praise is the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. I know some of your translations may make it seem as though there's three things here that are being praised, his riches, wisdom, and knowledge. But I think the New American Standard translates it rightly. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is praising God's knowledge and his wisdom. And as is frequently the case in poetry, the point isn't to distinguish them sharply, but just God knows what he's doing. God knows everything. And plan that who would have figured this plan out? Who would have predicted this plan? That Israel would stumble so as to invite the gospel to the Gentiles, who in turn would provoke Israel to jealousy and bring them in. And Paul says, when he looks at that, when he thinks about what God is doing, he's just marveling at the depth of the wisdom of God. That God's knowledge and his, his wisdom are, are unsearchable. It's not the way we would have done things. And, and praise God for that. It, it's, it's similar to a, a statement Paul makes in Ephesians 3, where he says in verse 8, To me, I am the very least of the saints. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This way of doing things demonstrates God's wisdom. It demonstrates the depth of his wisdom. He knows what he's doing. And he he doesn't need our help to do it, to plan it. Um, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So there's the first just declaration praising God. And the second two, again, sort of parallel each other. How unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways, which is two ways of saying the same thing. They're past finding out. If you put together a think tank to try to predict what God would do next, you'd fail every time. And that's the point. His judgments, his decisions, his conclusions that he comes to of how he shall act, they're unsearchable. And his ways, what he actually does, are equally inscrutable and unknowable. The way God chooses to act in space and time, if he doesn't reveal it to us, there's no way that we could guess or predict it. You know, a lot of times in Bible studies or in in situations, people will say things like, well, to me, I think God would da-da-da-da-da-da. I think God would, and then he finish it off with something. And, and, And a passage like this really says that's really not a good way to approach the study of the Bible. We should never start with what I think is right and good and then move to, therefore, that must be what God does. It's tempting to do it. We do it all the time. If I were God, I'd da-da-da-da-da. Therefore, God must do that. And, and Paul says no. God says no. How often do you read the Bible and come across something that utterly challenges the way you do things? In fact, if you are reading the Bible and every time God does something, you're like, yep, that's what I would have done, that's what, you're reading it wrong. You are. Just, just read through Romans 9, 10, and 11. The whole point, to some degree, that Paul takes head on in his teaching on predestination is he knows, he knows perfectly well it's going to provoke us. He knows perfectly well it's going to make us rise up and say, well, how is God just in doing that? And, and how is God right in doing that? And how does he still blame people for doing that? And Paul says he's God. Be quiet. That's pretty much the answer you get in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to the Creator? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? That's basically the answer. He's God, you're not, be quiet. Um, there's Jeremy's um, condensation of Romans 9. And, and which goes back to Paul's point of, of God in Exodus 24. I'm God and I do what I want. It's always right, it's always good, and, and we will praise him when we see it, but I'm God and I do what I want is what God says to Moses in essence. Um, and, and so... The conclusion then is that we may see what God's doing in history, but unless God tells us his purposes, we, we, we cannot assume that we can figure out what he's up to. You know, that's, that's another error that sometimes we run into. We see something going, oh, God must be up to this. Well, maybe, maybe not, perhaps, you know? Um, but God doesn't need us out there trying to sort of be like forecasters on the sideline, like, um, Thanksgiving, watch some football, and you know, the two commentators, there's the guy who knows what he's talking about, and there's Captain Obvious. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, Bob, they're going to need to score some more points if they want to win this game. Really? Really? You think so? Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, they're going to have to really give it their all if they want to have any chance to do something here. Really? That's got to hurt, Bob. You think? They're carrying him off on a stretcher. And... And, and God doesn't need us to sit on the sidelines in human history and say, oh, God's up to the... No, his ways are inscrutable. They're past finding out. They're past finding out. 
I, I, none of us sitting on the sidelines watching Israel crucify their Messiah would have, I know what God's up to. It's, it's going to be this double play. He's going to cast off Israel for a time to, to provoke the Gentiles, but then he's going to bring the Gentiles back together and Israel's going to come back in and he's going to have mercy on all. And We wouldn't have guessed that. We wouldn't have come up with that. We wouldn't have commentated on that properly. And, and so we should just stand back and marvel at what God is up to. We can see his works in time, but unless he chooses to tell us what he's doing, it, it really can border on foolishness to try to forecast and expound what he's up to. Um, he's God, and his ways are not our ways. So three declarations that praise the wisdom of God's plan. And what happens with these groupings is the next three questions sort of unpack the last statement. That's how they build. There's a, there's a, a dynamic building here. So you've got these three statements. He's got the depths and the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. He's got unsearchable judgments. He's got inscrutable ways. Four, which is meant to explain, what do you mean his ways are inscrutable? Well, this is what I mean. And he asks three rhetorical questions. The first comes from Isaiah 40. Turn there. The reason why I spent so much time setting the context of this passage is because the two texts that Paul quotes significantly share the same type of idea. In Isaiah, God is speaking to an Israel that will be captive in Babylon, predicting bringing them home. Some of this text come from Handel's Messiah takes some of these about the highway and the desert and speaking about God bringing his people back. But at the time, captive in Babylon, I doubt they would have, again, predicted what was going on. He said, who has known his mind? That's the first question. And, and we'll just pick it up in verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in measures and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? And then here's the passage Paul quotes. Who has measured or known the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Which is to say, Babylon may seem like a big deal right now. And Israel is this tiny little swallowed up nation, but that's nothing to God. And are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice as fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Then he goes on to contrast the folly of idolatry. And the point is this. To Israel in Babylon, don't think it's a hard thing for God to bring you back. 
Don't think this big nation of Babylon's a big deal. It's, it's dust in God's scales. And again, when he brings this question, and the point is this, God's got a plan, you don't know what it is. God's doing something here. It may look like utter failure. God promised the land to Abraham, and now we're off the land, and we're in Babylon, and we're captive, and we're defeated because we were faithless. And God says, I'm not done with you, I'm gonna bring you back. And in that context, who's known God's mind? Who's given him advice? And it's such a ridiculous question that it's, it's laughable. It's sort of picturing someone saying, hey, God, um, I got some tips for you. And then you know, God up in heaven, oh, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's, that's, I, think, I think that'll work. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and it's laughable, but do we ever do that type of thing? Try to give God a hand, help him out with some things? It, sometimes it shows up with, with us sort of trying to tweak God's plans of doing things. You know, God has told us, we'll take, for instance, say the church and how a church should run, but there's plenty of churches that have improved upon God's plan for the church. Plenty of churches that have improved upon God's way of doing church. Um, giving God some tips. And poor old God, he had a decent plan, but we've, we know a lot more now and we've got a better plan. And so this is a rebuke. It's, it's meant to be ridiculous. It's meant to point out the foolishness of trying to take credit for or try to, um, again, anticipate what God is up to. Who has who known his mind? I'm, I'm glad to see no hands are going up. Um, although, we'll get to in a second, Paul will use this exact same text in 1 Corinthians and make a slightly different point from it. Who has been his counselor? Again, you picture the foolishness of the thought of God sort of needing some help, calling someone up. But, but here's one important point. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul makes use of the same passage. Chapter 2, verse 9. In a similar context, but the wonders of the gospel. But as it is written, what eye has seen, nor ear heard, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Which is just another way to say the depths of the riches of the glory of the gospel. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person who is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then here's the same quotation. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the point is this. On the one hand, God is so greater, so much bigger, so much wiser on such a different plane of operation than you that it is folly for us to try to reason our way up to him. I think God would do this. I think God's like this. When people say that, they're telling you a lot more about themselves than they are about God. And if that was all there was, we'd be in utter hopelessness because we could know nothing about this God. Theologians talk about God's transcendence, God's otherness, God's outside of the universe. He's not part of the universe. He made the universe. 
And so on the one hand, we've got to despair in and of ourselves of reaching up to know God. But as Paul points out here in Corinthians, he's given us his spirit. He's given us his word so that we can know the things revealed to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children. So it's folly to try to pry into the secret things, the things God hasn't spoken about. You know, the things that God has not revealed in his word. The secret things. We're not going to be able to attain to those things. But the things God has revealed, the things that God has given us his spirit to understand, those things we can know, those things we can understand, those things we can think his thoughts after him. Without his spirit, without his word, it would be hopeless. But with his spirit and with his word, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. So, so Paul has shown the folly here of trying to reason our way up to God and our, revealed our utter dependence upon God to reveal himself. The third question then, who has given him a gift, comes from Job 41. And again, there's a similar context. Somebody is in peril, not peril, somebody is in distress, anguish. And, and the answer from God is, well, similar. It's, it's, I'm God and you're not, and trust me. Israel's in Babylon, I'm God, you're not, trust me, I can get you out of this. Job, his family destroyed and dead, his wealth and property taken, his counselors being no good to him at all. And Job 41, God, in part of God's rebuke to silence Job, says to him, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You, you see, when we're tempted to say that God is in the wrong, that God has done wrong, that God is somehow misstepped, and honestly, if you read through Romans 9, 10, 11, you may be tempted to say that. Paul expects we will. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. The point here that's made is this. In order for any one of us to charge God with wrongdoing, we'd first have to establish that he was obligated or indebted to someone, that there was something he ought to do, and he didn't do it. But since none of us have given God a gift, since none of us have put the creator of all things into our debt, he is obligated to none of us. Every breath that we breathe is a gift of grace. It's not deserved. Um, I, I love my wife, I love my children, but God has not owed me their continued life. God has not owed that to me. God has not owed us health. He's not owed us financial success. If, if you want to speak of what we deserve and what we have a right to, and people start talking about rights, the only thing I have a right to is hell now. Right? That's the only thing I have a right to is hell now. Anything other than hell now is grace. Even hell later is grace. If criminals murder and rob and steal and get sentenced to 50 years, but the sentence begins in 10 years, that would be a grace. The only thing we have a right to is hell now. Anything else is grace. So the foolishness of saying that God is mistreating us, mishandling us, not giving us what we deserve is folly. No one has put God into his debt. No one has ever given God a gift and God's like, oh, I got, okay. But we want to operate with God that way. We want to operate with a tit for tat. And, and, and God rebukes Job saying, look, Job, I, Job doesn't know this, but the giving the book, God's bragging about Job. But even as good and godly as Job was, it doesn't put God in his debt. He's the creator of all things. You can never 
put God in your debt. You can never get God to owe you anything. Um, and, and really to try to do that is to put ourselves in the position of glory and honor. Here's God with a need, and here's big me supplying God's need. Isn't God lucky that someone like me came along to you know, help him out? And sometimes we'll, you know, we'll try to get people started up for missions that way. You know, poor God needs some people to sign up. How on earth is he going to get his great commission carried out unless you do something? No, God, the rocks will cry out if we don't. But we get the privilege of sharing in the Great Commission. It's not that God's plan would be thwarted if we didn't. It's that we get the joy of participating in it. So who has given him a gift that he might owe him? Well, obviously no one. God made everything. How could we put God in our debt? And then the, the last three points stem off of that to sort of prove that point even further. To prove the point that you can't put God in your debt, we get these three prepositions that, that really center the entire universe around God. And now we're getting close to our final praise. For from him and through him and to him are all things. I just want you to stop and think about the, the massive radical statement that that is. All things. Every star out in the universe every blade of grass, every insect, every molecule of air in this room, everything. That means you, that means me. All things are from him. He's the source of all things. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. But more importantly than all things being from him, think about this, all things are through him, which means not only did God make us and make everything, he continues to hold it together. In Hebrews chapter one, we read, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Which means not only did God make you, but the, the fact that you continue to exist second by second is only a result of the active energy and working of God. See, God didn't make you and then step away and watch us run around. God sustains us. God holds us together. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 to 17, we have a similar statement. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If the risen Lord did not actively sustain us, we would cease to be. If the risen Lord did not actively, by the power of his word, sustain us and hold us together, we would cease to be. And in that light, how foolish is it to think that he could ever owe us anything. On the contrary, we owe him everything. The very fact that you exist, that you are, and continue to be, is by the grace of God. And then the final preposition, to him are all things. And this is probably the most radical and God-centered. It means, why do things exist? Why do you exist? For God's purposes. And that all things means all things. 
Why does disease exist? To him. Why does war and famine exist? Ultimately for his purposes. That's the type of thing Paul's looking at here. Why does Israel's failure exist? For God's purposes. This means that we never understand anything rightly. Anything, like that music stand, the quadratic equation, anything, unless we understand it as existing for God's purposes. I don't understand it really this podium properly until I understand this podium as being ultimately grounded in the creative work of God, ultimately sustained by God's ongoing work, and ultimately existing for God's purposes. I don't, we don't know anything rightly or properly until we understand it connected to that framework. Everything is from him, and everything is through him, and everything is to him. Everything. There is not a molecule in this universe that the risen Lord does not say, mine. It's, it's all his. He claims it all. He made it all. He sustains it all. And he bought it again at the cross. And it's in that context of these things coming to mind that Paul brings out, breaks out in the final praise and, and worship of God. And we will in a moment as well. Um, saying, <laughs> to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, think about that. God's wise plan in saving you and me. God's utter self-sufficient wisdom. He doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need our advice. You can't put him in your debt. He created all things. All things exist from him and through him and to him. And we just receive benefit after benefit. We receive the gospel. We receive the church. We receive his word. We get each other. We get him. We get this great hope of the kingdom to come. So we're going to close by singing a song. If you would uh, stand, we're going to sing I Exalt Thee.